0: welcome to dispatch live i'm david french as you can tell from uh the zoom with the helpful names i'm joined here by kevin williamson
1: and price st Clair. price is this this isn't your first dispatch live is it It is not my first it is my third but still uh yeah a newbie okay
0: fantastic please tell me that i didn't host one of the other two and i just forgot You did
1: not. You did not. It was okay. Good. Yeah.
0: Good. Good. All right. Well, this is going to be a year in review, Dispatch Live. So we're going to reflect on the previous year and uh, some of the high points, some of the low points, and uh, we'll answer your questions, questions that arise as we discuss this. But let's just go ahead and start. um, And let's just do our own Dispatch imitation of Time Magazine. And talk through who we think is the person of the year and a pretty momentous year. And I'll, I'll start with you, Kevin. Uh, we have Volodymyr Zelensky coming to speak to Congress tomorrow. Um, uh, Times named him. Would you put him as person of the year? Or what What's your choice?
2: Worldwide? Probably. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. He's obviously um, someone who has set a, um, uh, an inspiring example, I think, for a lot of people, I think in the United States, um, it's probably Sam Alito, mm. um, because I think Dobbs, in terms of our politics, is probably the most important thing that's, that's happened, which I'll uh, get back to in a little bit. I was thinking, though, about, um, you know, no one asked me the question that I wanted them to ask it, which, who's my who's my my rat bastard of the year? Who's my sort of worst person? <laughs> oh, that's a great year. And I've been thinking about that some. And, um, you know, I really settled on Mike Pence, I think. And uh, even as Pence sort of fades from uh, from relevance in American political life, to be a guy who was such a you know gross, craven, abject, spineless, knee walking Trump enabler, until after the guy had lost the election, when he suddenly <laughs> discovers um, his his conscience again, for that guy to publish a book and call it "So Help Me God" is really irritating. <laughs> uh, you know, he should have called his book I Went to Bed with the Devil and woke up with a burning sensation. But it uh, would have been a much better name for his first book, I think. But um yeah, I think that uh, I think that Sam Alito is probably my, uh, my my person of the year, at least in terms of uh, American politics going forward. I think that we haven't really even um haven't really even got the entire indication of um how big this is going to be in terms of its um cultural and, and political import. So I, I got to stick with the Pence question for a second before I get a prize. <laughs> Please do.
0: So no warm feelings after January 6th. Uh, I, I, I got to say, I I warmed up considerably to Mike Pence after January 6th.
2: No, um, <laughs> you know, I I would remind him that so help me God as part of his oath of office, which he spent four years just taking a series of giant, not going to say that out loud, uh, on, and, uh, (laughs) um, yeah, you know, um, he rediscovered his conscience at the moment when it was most convenient for him to do it. And, uh, and when it would have been really inconvenient for him, at least according to, you know, sort of obvious political calculation going forward to not do it, um, you know, to stick around for all that nonsense and all that grossness and all that deceit and, chaos and dishonesty and evil um and then if a last second is sort of you know oh well he's lost the election now he's not going to be a factor anymore so i guess i'll come back and be the guy no you know um again if you're going to call a book to help me god god will forgive him and that's great but but i don't think the american electorate should uh because i think it's been really clear that he's um he's shown himself to be a man of extraordinarily poor judgment and unreliable character when it comes to public affairs. And um, there's no reason to ever trust him with any sort of power again. So go away, Mike Pence. Tired of you. Uh, All right. Don't want to hear another word out of your (laughs) pious little mouth.
0: So uh, the chat so far, uh, Ryan is telling us is disagreeing with Kevin. It's not Samuel Alito's person of the year. It's
1: Elon Musk. Mm -hmm. What say you price? (laughs) Uh, Well, I think Elon definitely should get an honorable mention in terms of interesting stories of the year, um, given that we've been following this back and forth with him and Twitter since April. Uh, But no, I I would not agree with the commenters who are saying, Elon, to me, I mean, I think it is important that you you brought up Alito and Dobbs. That is a very important story of the year. But I think Time Magazine was right in the consensus opinion that uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine showing moral leadership in a way that, you know, when the... Invasion started in February. I remember talking to my friends, like, wh- what if he's assassinated in the next two days? You know, and right. instead, here we are. And or what if he evacuates, about- right? Exactly. Yeah. E- any mm-hmm. of those things. And instead, here we are, and he's about to actually in-person address Congress. That's pretty remarkable. Um, so yeah, I- as far, far as, as, far as Elon thing.
2: goes, I mean, $44 billion is a really expensive midlife crisis.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's I about mean, the truth.
2: <laughs> I mean, you're the, you're the wealthiest man in the world someday, so you can't just go buy a Corvette. Um but you know even Jeff Bezos just dumped his wife and started dating some you know actress I mean 44 billion that's a <sighs> that's, yeah, people, that's people
1: much. should read uh Nick Katogio Alapundit's piece from the other day about how it would have been cheaper and better for the world if Elon had been a heroin addict instead <laughs> True <laughs> but I would say
0: if I, my case for Elon is person of the year but I'm going to I'm going to agree with Price it's it's Zelensky um but Samuel Alito is a fanta- fantastic honorable mention But my case for Elon as person of the year has nothing to do with Twitter. I think this Twitter stuff is a sideline. It's a footnote to a footnote of history. It's his space program. SpaceX is far more world historic consequential than Twitter by orders of magnitude. It's Mm -hmm. just not even close. And, you know, the... I would I might pick him as person of the year if his um, Starship gets off the launch pad before the end of the year which is looking increasingly unlikely but early next year um the United States is going to break the record it set this year for most powerful rocket to ever lift off from the planet Earth which was the Artemis 1 mission and it'll be broken by the SpaceX super heavy Starship combo that's supposed to launch very very soon from SpaceX's Starbase in in Texas. So my case for Elon would not be about Twitter, it would be about that um, yeah. much more consequential. Well that that's a good that's a good question. What are if 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 historians are looking back at 2022, what are the truly most consequential developments of 2022? I think the Ukraine war is an obvious top of the list uh dobbs being overturned kevin what anything else on that list that's going to be consequential 50 years from now
2: well if i can be out of character for a second and uh and and try on some optimism i have some hope that maybe 200 years when they're looking back at this era they will not think of it as the time of covid and trump and twitter and culture war nonsense they will think of the time when we figured out fusion Mm. And if the nuclear fusion stuff is happening at the National Ignition Laboratory turns out to be practicable and workable, uh, that's going to be an enormous world changing thing that's going to make everything else that's happened in the last couple of years uh look pretty small. And uh there's reasons for that that I think um some of the, the conversation around this hasn't really touched. You know, having um a very, very cheap, very, very clean form of electricity is super useful for things like you know heating buildings and keeping the lights on and all that but it also solves a lot of other problems like water um you know mainly the problem with water is is that it takes tremendous amounts of energy to run a desalination plant and it's just prohibitive to do it um with this you can you can get that sort of thing done Um, also the transportation issue you know you're not going to really probably um solve the environmental and economic challenges associated with getting rid of hydrocarbons or replacing hydrocarbons eventually in transportation with batteries, because batteries have all sorts of environmental consequences of their own, but you can probably do it with hydrogen. And uh, again, manufacturing hydrogen's a really, really energy intensive thing, but if you've got a relatively clean source of electricity that is uh, cheap as well, then um, you can probably solve that as well. So it's um, it'll be a big thing if it works. If it's, uh, if it's scalable and replicable and uh, deployable, Bryce. Right, same
0: question to you. What's what are the what are the truly consequential historical events of 2022? If
1: you're a historian in 2072, great question. Uh, I do think the aside from the obvious of Ukraine, Dobbs, and the fusion, uh, which I need to read more about and learn more about, um, I think there is a case to be made. That the midterms were pretty historically important, maybe in a way that won't be as recognized in, in 50 years, but will still have been important. And I think mm-hmm. the primary part of that will be the sort of craziest, more election-denying candidates losing very badly. Um, that ha- that'll that have consequences in 2024, 2026, 2028, mm-hmm. that we aren't, don't even really know what those will be now. Um, yes, which we, sort of... I was thinking earlier this week like the stuff with the midterms is so contingent but like if republicans hadn't had a huge midterm victory in 2002 post 9-11 would barack obama have become president i don't know uh but there's a whole sequence of events in between mm-hmm. there that, that's very contingent and so um the midterms will have an impact for a while and i think it's important that the election deniers lost and their variety of things moving the needle i think the january 6th Committee, you know, is not having an immediate legal impact, but for the sake of posterity, they've been more effective than I think a lot of people thought ahead of time. And I thought there were it's just as this is something that I've covered uh, going into the January 6th committee. There were good reasons, I think, to think, oh, maybe this will sort of be useless, but it may have helped move the needle. So midterms is my answer.
2: I'm silently so, sc- I'm silently scoffing. <laughs> uh, as as well, much probably. as I'm going to enjoy watching the Republican Party die a slow, painful, humiliating death uh, that it richly deserves, the idea that congressional Republicans in 2022 or 2023 can do anything historically important is just, it's hard to swallow.
1: I'm not saying they're going to do anything historically important, but that the fact that they, the most sort of election denying candidates, lost is setting the stage potentially for something healthier in 2024, 2026, Uh, but I'm not going to say that they're going to do the, you know, the committees in 2023 are going to do incredible stuff
2: that historians are going to remember. Sure. I think the bubonic plague would be healthier.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think the jury is out as to whether 2022 marked a fever breaking moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, We'll, we'll see if it's a fever breaking moment, um, potentially aided down the line by a collapse of the trump campaign or indictment mm-hmm. of trump and following that collapse of the trump campaign that will be really interesting to to see but yeah I'm, the the jury is out for me on the significance of 2022.
2: You know, david on the subject of a trump campaign i hate to hijack here but i'm just curious what you all no think go. about this um i have a kind of sneaking suspicion that he may want to try to run as an independent in the next presidential election rather than seek with the republican um nomination for this reason he knows he's not going to win either one of them i think he's dumb but he's he's not so dumb that he can't figure that out and i think it would be less humiliating for him to run as an independent and then say well it's rigged you know the two parties are in collusion and all that sort of stuff mm-hmm. than it would be to run in the republican primary and lose to a Desantis or someone like that
0: what do you think that's a really interesting question i think it's hard for me to imagine him declaring his independence anytime soon considering he's still Depending on the poll, I mean, we've seen the polling all over the place, but depending on the poll, he's still beating DeSantis by double digits. And then two days later, we'll see a poll having DeSantis beating him by double digits. My biggest question would be if he sees himself spot losing, when, not if, when does he take his ball and go home and and how does he do it? Does he do it by saying uh, this is all rigged? There's no way on earth I'm going to support Ron DeSantis. You will never in a million years see that convention moment where we both lift our arms in the air. Mm. Um, And I'm just going to go home and tell everybody this whole thing is rigged or do what you suggested, which is I'm going home and then sallying back out to get on the ballot in 50 states as an independent candidate and get more independent candidate votes than anybody since Ross Perot or even maybe more than Ross Perot. And which would absolutely torpedo the GOP. He
2: is how many? Mm-hmm. Uh, how many independent votes did Kanye get last time around? Um, more than he's
1: going to get this time around, I would say. Well, I'm not so <laughs> sure about that.
2: But,
1: uh. So with the uh, Trump, I, I think what you just said, David, about him having to then make an effort to get on the ballot in all 50 states—that's what will be challenging um it's, it's hard to imagine that from the perspective of he announced his campaign and hasn't held any rallies since then and he's selling nft trading cards um yeah. so it's not it's not know, as hard as let, let me put it
0: this way if the libertarians do it every year every four years it's not as hard as you might imagine
2: <laughs> no but the people who do that kind of work professionally like to get paid up front
0: it's true that is true <laughs> uh well, well going back to our list um let we've kind of covered some of the better, what, you know, what we think are the best moments of the year in the, in the lines of what are the most momentous, uh, what are, what are the worst moments of the year from a sort of political, cultural, um, historical point
2: of view? Kevin, go with you first. I think that, um, we've seen a lot of, uh, genuine bravery from Ukrainian patriots from Chinese patriots from Iranian patriots people who really want to uh change their countries who are laboring under these awful uh brutal regimes of various characters and watching them discover that they have fewer friends than they thought they did in the United States has been um disheartening the um you know emergence of anti-Ukrainian uh sort of activism as a as a lively republican issue I think is um you know, just one more uh scar on the face of that uh party uh but also you know the the Iranians and the chinese might have been looking for a little more encouragement a little more um of at least a rhetorical embrace uh from the united states i um, mean you know, there's this kind of everyone in our political discourse tries to be clever and cleverness is kind of the great enemy of getting stuff done i think and and cleverness is the great enemy of of real intelligence and so there's this kind of you know cleverness uh approach to this they say well we can't come out and support the chinese because then we'll give the people in beijing uh an opportunity to say well this is all the americans just trying to undermine us behind the scenes well they're going to say that anyway Mm -hmm. um as we all know Um, we may as well go out there and say what we actually think about this stuff which is that we think that people should be free and the government should be accountable to the people they govern and that there should be elections and freedom of speech and freedom of the press and these sorts of things and that if the chinese people want that for themselves um and if the iranian people want that for themselves then we would like to see them get it that doesn't mean we're going to go drop bombs or even send money or do anything other than say good luck um but saying good luck would be worth something
0: price what's your thought on worst moment of the year politically culturally
1: yeah um we've already talked about Ukraine. I think that has to be up there, the fact of the actual invasion. Um, And then anti-Semitism, an increase in anti-Semitism. You stole mine. You stole uh, mine. Okay. You stole mine. Sorry. Go ahead. I I, I was, uh, you know, trying to think earlier today about what were, since Ryan sent us this list, what were some of the worst things of the year? And the the Kanye-Alex Jones thing, which is sort of bizarre to watch, you know, sort of a, in some ways like a dumb story but but the fact that uh you know just sort of rabid like I like Hitler anti-Semitism from someone of that uh <laughs> level of popularity in society we have that now is wild and it's not just that there's been multiple other data points of you know violent attacks against Jewish people uh on the rise yeah. um so that's that's a bummer but would love to hear your thoughts on that as well,
0: yeah, you know the thing that really is discouraging is. The the way in which our public square works these days is if somebody, if enough people pile on someone, even for a really good reason, there's going to be a backlash to the pile on, Mm. even if there's no good reason for the backlash. And so one of the things that's so unfortunate about Kanye sort of standing out there and just asking questions or praising Hitler or or Kyrie Irving and his, Mm -hmm. his comments, um, and the black Hebrew Israelites sort of embracing him. And you see people, um, even if they're not gonna admit necessarily pro-Kanye, they're gonna be anti-anti-Kanye. And if they're not gonna be pro-Kyrie Irving, they're gonna be anti-anti-Kyrie Irving. And there's just this sort of idea that there's this an reflexive reaction whenever there seems to be a consensus Opinion, And some of that you saw with the Ukraine stuff that you saw people on the right reacting to support for Ukraine, calling it the, quote, current thing. Well, of course, it's the biggest story in the world because it's the first large scale land war in Europe since World War II, launched by a nuclear armed world power. Of course, it's going to be the current thing. It's called the freaking news cycle. (laughs) Right. I mean, this is the biggest Mm -hmm. news in the world. But then people are going to then say, well, that's what the elite wants you to pay attention to, or the elite wants you to support Ukraine. And there's this sort of reflexive anti-consensus move that has actually in many ways elevated some of the worst people in the United States. And you've seen this in the in the backlash to the, the uh, condemnation of Kanye, you even saw some of it on behalf of Alex Jones, where there were people saying, Oh, well, the, the defamation verdicts against Alex Jones, Alex Jones were mm-hmm. direct attacks on free speech when defamation of course, has never been considered part of the freedom of speech protected by the first amendment. And so I would say the anti-Semitism of Kanye and the way in which this really dysfunctional culture that we have has at least created a kind of anti-anti-Kanye world um that mm-hmm. gives anti-Semitism room to operate.
2: Um you know, there's right, an we interesting gotta- aspect of that story in that um you know anti-Semitism in African American politics has been a big part of American culture for a long time. Uh, I remember when Sam Katz was running for mayor of Philadelphia and just watching you know black crowds shout things at him and his wife that just you know unthinkable but it's always been sort of contained in democratic urban party uh politics and kanye is kind of interesting because he's broken out of that and uh he's you know, sort of a rightish uh figure i mean there's always been right-wing anti-semitism too mm-hmm. but it was it was you know white guy anti-semitism it was very right. sort of a different thing from kind of Louis Farrakhan anti-semitism
0: right right exactly mm-hmm. um all right here's here's a good question from Clark um do you think we will see more elected officials leave their political parties and become independent, like Chris? Uh, Kirsten Cinema.
1: Hmm. D- short answer: No. <laughs> um, just uh, the way things. Well, first of all, I I think the cinema story has been overhyped a little bit. She's still functionally caucusing with the Democrats, and the committee structure of the Senate is not. You know, Democrats are going to still retain control of the committees with her, sort of as part of their, one of their members. Just the same way that Angus King from Maine mm-hmm. has been coxing with Democrats as long as he's been in the Senate, but he has an I next to his name. Bernie um, Sanders, Bernie Sanders, Sanders forever, but, yeah. Um, So, and then more broadly, uh, you know, I guess it, it, those sorts of people—the Angus Kings and the Bernie Sanders and the Kirsten Sinemas of the world—who are incumbent senators—they're the people in politics who it's the ease, that's a relatively easier move for them to make. But if you're someone new trying to break in, um, just both in terms of getting on the ballot, getting your name out, raising money, hard to do that effectively and actually win races outside the, the two-party system, not saying I'm happy about it necessarily, but I think that's the way it works. Kevin thoughts. Yeah, I think we'll
2: probably, I think we'll probably see more of it. Um, So a couple of things one is that there's um you know kind of cheap populist moral uh blessing that you get from being anti-party and uh or being trans party or being you know independent and um that's um kind of low-hanging uh fruit for a certain kind of you know aspiring uh demagogue of course the the parties don't matter as much as they used to they don't have the kind of power they used to so i think that you'll see more of this among people as uh who are as Price points out, already incumbent politicians who already sort of have a footprint, but also celebrities who want to be in politics, and um, as we see the celebrification of our of our politics, which is was well underway uh, kind of before Trump, but Trump certainly uh, supercharged it in some ways. Then um, they don't need the parties to raise money. They don't need the parties to put together volunteer groups to uh, help them with ballot access and things like that. So I think some of those people will. Uh, certainly do it. If I were, you know, if I were Oprah Winfrey or Kim Kardashian or someone like that, and I wanted to be a senator or run for president, I think I would probably do it as an independent rather than as a member of a party.
0: You know, Lisa Murkowski is also an interesting example in that although she's still a Republican, she actually opted out of, you know, and now, now Alaska is different. It has the ranked choice system, but, Mm -hmm. you know, she came, She she did an end run around the primary system, became a write-in candidate. I think there is going to be more room for people who have established names, who have sort of forged an independent identity to chart their own course for exactly the reason that Kevin was saying. Once you have achieved a certain level of name recognition and sort of political celebrity status, degree of independence that goes along with it. But I also think some people might be looking to see What's going to happen to cinema electorally? Because this is kind of a move to put the Democrats in a position of sort of saying, wait a minute. If we run somebody, we lose this. We lose this seat because um, our candidate is not going to take enough votes, is not going to win enough votes and take enough votes from cinema and be able to beat the Republican because Republicans will be united. So, do we run? A primary candidate, or do we have a Democratic primary? Do we just go ahead and say, yeah, Senator, we may not like it, but we're in a tough position and then cinema is our best option? And if that, if that sort of gambit works, it's sort of an interesting way for a controversial incumbent or an incumbent who doesn't, you know, really satisfy the base to sort of say to the party, too bad. I'm opting out of all this base craziness. You're gonna censure me. You're going to censure me for going to be an independent-minded senator? Well, I'll leave the party and put you in an impossible position and make you choose to lose this seat or
1: back me. It's an interesting play. So who who might be some of those senators then? Um, I mean, Murkowski, Murkowski would be a great example, but she hasn't done it yet.
0: Mitt. Mitt, yeah. you know? um if the re- utah republican party gets too drawn towards sort of the the kind of base politics that resulted in censuring doug ducey in arizona and running Kerry lake <laughs> you know Mitt i'm Romney, so grateful th- that the
2: word we use for this is base by the way yeah it's just it's appropriate in both senses
0: <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely i mean and and look i mean i i'm I do think there are signs that some folks in the base have recognized that this sort of rhino hunt mentality is not necessarily the key to electoral success going forward. But not enough of them. Um, I'm not so sure the fever has really broken. If it should break anywhere, it should break in Arizona. Yeah, I mean, do see one reelection in a Democratic year in 2018 by what, 14, 15 points? And Kerry Lake loses. Yeah, that should tell like, you
2: why. I, I like to imagine Mitt Romney uh, quoting Coriolanus and telling the Republican Party, "You censure me, I censure you." <laughs> yeah. Walking out of the room, so that would be uh, that would be great. Not his style, I think. Though,
0: um, here's a great question. Uh, it's from William. You talked about the potential breaking of the fever on the right, which jury's out. Was year was 2022 the year fever broke on the left? I think here's a good way of phrase. Here's another way of phrasing it. Have we seen peak woke?
1: So Kevin, no, no, go ahead, price. Go ahead. I was going to say my short answer to this question is in most people's discourse. Yes, but not on college campuses. Mm. I was, I was talking last week. I got to talk briefly with Rui Teixeira, the democratic Emerging Democratic majority guy who's now a scholar of yeah. AEI. Um, and that sort of seemed to be his view. And I think it makes sense that like I, it, peak woke, at least to me, like just meeting and interacting with people in, in DC or elsewhere in life doesn't seem to be the case for me. But if I text and talk to friends and co- who are like still in college, they're like, Oh man, sort of, you know, crazy progressive stuff is, more more salient than it than it even was two years ago so interesting that's that's my current hypothesis i'm not but i'm not strongly wedded to it kevin thoughts uh, on that
2: no i don't i don't think we've seen peak woke um it's like when you go for a, a hike in the mountains and every time you you know go over a ridge and you think that's it and there's a another one beyond it that's even higher and i've been, uh, I been think there yeah <laughs> yeah you probably more more often than i have but um I think that one of the contributors to making this worse is going to be the fact that the um, tech industry is um, very, very committed to uh, remote work. Mm. And um, so, like, there was an interesting article in the New York Times today about the fact that San Francisco and downtown has like a 40% vacancy rate in its office uh, buildings, something like that. And as these people go out and work remotely and spend less time in offices, they're going to spend more time online. And, um, those sort of weird, shallow polarizing social media relationships will loom larger in their lives than in-person interactions will, as they have fewer of them. And those are very culturally, uh, important people. They, Mm -hmm. um, they really do a lot to set the tone, both in the business world and in that kind of social media conversation. So, um, I think that the um, you know kind of hardcore um, Maoist vanguard of, uh, of peakliness is going to get worse, not better. At the same time,
0: we've seen some red pilling in the Silicon Valley world as well from the very online sure. cohort. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting question, well, and, and that's and,
2: uh, and, and these things are that's a that's a symbiotic relationship, right? Mm-hmm. So you know your your antifa types need your Proud boy types, uh, right? Your social justice warriors need your people who talk about being red pilled and that sort of thing. It's um mm-hmm. well, it's something you know about David. It's a role playing game, uh, essentially. <laughs> it's not it's not real politics and it's not real conversation. It's um, kind of a role playing game that happens on social media that functions as group therapy for desperate sad people. But that's a whole another conversation.
0: Yeah, it, it, you know, it's interesting. There's, But there's also been stories like the uh, Ryan Grimm story in The Intercept about what's happening in progressive philanthropy and nonprofit and, um, world that has really seemed to trigger a bit of a tipping point in people coming forward and saying, yeah, this is a big problem. We, there has been a big problem. And then there's some other work that's been done sort of in progressive activist spaces saying, we've got a problem on our hands. And so I'm seeing a lot of that out there. I'm seeing people, you know, stand up and say, "Hey, we there there's a real problem here." And it's a um so yeah, it's going to be very interesting. I mean, um Michelle Goldberg wrote on uh just this last week in the new york times a piece called the left's fever is breaking Hmm. featuring a piece um in that same space by somebody else um a guy named maurice mitchell and so i do think that there's something to this idea that the left liberal world the center left world is reasserting itself in some important ways um Remains to be seen, and we've seen some of that on the center right world, where mm-hmm. we've seen the, you know, for example, the failure of Herschel Walker's campaign compared to the success of Brian Kemp's campaign, the much lower margin of victory for a JD Vance than for a DeWine. I um, mean, we can do this all day long on the 2022 results. So I do wonder if there is a sort of a at least a, bi- a bit of a bipartisan reckoning. But I think, there's your, a little your brow
2: I think there's a little quiet right now when it comes to corporate activism, because mm-hmm. people are calling up people like Mark Zuckerberg and saying, hey, we want you to come do this lefty social justice thing. And he's saying, yeah, we're not making any money right now. Uh, mm-hmm. I've got other stuff I need to go do for a bit. Uh, but once you see a, a stronger and fuller economic recovery where people can afford to be jackasses again, I, I expect the jackass tree will come back in full swing. Also, there was something to me, and maybe I'm wrong, but I felt change in the wind with the Russia
0: invasion, Russian invasion. Mm. That here was history sort of reasserting itself in this very primal and brutal way, where it makes well, so and so's comment about racism on Instagram was insufficiently eloquent. And so therefore we need to rise up. It starts to look a lot mm-hmm. more trivial. When you're in the middle, when there's, when there's a real shooting war, we're in the midst of a real shooting war with, uh, you know, one of the most brutal dictators on the planet who happens to have
2: thousands of nuclear weapons, but that history, tends to focus the mind. History reassuring itself, though, can, can go either way, right? I mean, do you remember right. after, after 9-11, there was all this talk, this is really going to change our politics in this positive way, or we're going to be more serious, and uh, I hate the word unity and unified, but, you know, that kind <laughs> right. of talk. Uh, When it made our politics a lot worse, it made us more paranoid, more tribalistic, more personal in our politics. It really brought out the conspiracy kookery um, on both sides of the of the of the political fence. So it's certainly there's certainly a case that Ukraine has brought out um, a strain of craziness in certain Republicans anyway, that um, didn't need to be emphasized.
0: It's true, true. All right price question next question coming to you okay what is a house bill that makes it through the senate in the next 2 years other than renaming post offices in other words yes. what what what's yeah. what legislation comes through to joe biden's desk in the next 2 years
1: um i'll have to say <clears throat> overall i'm pretty skeptical um that that of, of anything of significance really happening with that. However, if it if it is something, it'll probably be, <clears throat> maybe I just have this on my mind because of Haley's uh, interview with Mike Gallagher that was today, mm-hmm. but probably something China related and or TikTok related. Like, but with, Given all the stuff that's happened with TikTok in the last even two weeks, I would not at all be surprised to see sort of bipartisan support for, let's not only get this off of government phones, but. Uh, you know, maybe we break off like U.S. component of TikTok and, and sell it to an American company. I don't know the details of how that would work, but I wouldn't mm-hmm. be surprised to see something like that happen. Um, and for all of Republican, the House Republicans problems, they, they are pretty hawkish on China. Um, and I, I wouldn't I guess I'm saying I wouldn't be shocked if there was something that they could come together to support that. Senate Democrats also liked well enough and sent it on a Biden's desk. But in general, um, with a split Congress and already the House is largely a messaging body, I think most stuff uh, of, of significance will sort of originate in the Senate. Do you think, it's likely, that,
2: do you think it's likely that, that there will be a large increase in military spending, uh, which Republicans will want and enough Democrats in the Senate want as well? And I think that Biden actually would like as well. Sure, <laughs> I, I will. I will admit I don't know enough about the subject
1: of military spending to have a super mm-hmm. strong opinion about the likelihood of that, and I I would love to learn more. But if 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 the dynamic is as you say, and I that that fits with what I've heard from others and and read in the news, um,
2: well, one of the things we typically spent seen in split congresses is that the one thing everyone can agree on is spending more money. Uh, <laughs> sometimes sometimes they can agree on cutting taxes, some although that's become really. Um, an issue that Republicans are less invested in and Democrats become more uh hostile toward than they, than they have been in the past um but there is a lot of pent-up demand out there for uh higher military spending which is which I think is not not a not a great policy um although there are some things we probably should be spending um uh, some more money on on that front but um if the pressure is to well we can all get along on the subject of sending money out to people and um what's the subject probably the military um if there's a bad recession you may actually see some consensus on economic stimulus in the same way you did um during uh covid where there was actually pretty broad bipartisan consensus on shoveling money out the door as fast as they possibly could so um Anything that is financially irresponsible, potentially ruinous and destructive, uh, probably has a pretty good uh, pretty good chance compared to anything that's the opposite of those things. Uh, that'd be my best guess.
0: You know, I think the military spending um, that you mentioned, Kevin, and I have a different view. I, I think it's going to be necessary to increase for this now, you're, reason. You're a warmonger.
2: We all know this. <laughs> that's... That.
0: That's what they in the, say. In the pocket um, of the
2: Ukrainians. So, so, yeah. <laughs>
0: so you're going to have to do two things at once. One, you're going to have to continue to supply Ukraine with the sufficient weapons to, to go toe-to-toe with Russia for the indefinite future, which is a big industrial lift, by the way. Fighting a great power toe-to-toe, even if all you're doing, all you're doing is providing the raw materials for it arsenal of democracy piece of all of this that's a lot of money and that's a big lift and then at the same time we need to replenish our own stocks and expand our stocks because what is that an actual shooting war with a major power consumes ammunition including precision guided weapons at an unbelievable rate and so you know we're going to be spending money to just Replenish the stocks that we've lost, much less keep Ukraine in the fight, and that's going to take a lot. And you'll see, I would imagine you would see some deal making with the Ukraine skeptical GOP that says, "All right, can, will you at least not, you know, block this package or, or or throw the Hastert rule into doubt through this package in exchange for?" some additional military spending, including replenishing ammunition stocks. And then a, there's going to be some consensus that the U S Pacific fleet needs to get stronger. Um, speaking of China, so I, I could see something moving there, but as far as
2: immigration, no, <laughs> what else? No, no, <laughs> Yeah. You know what I would like to see and this is off the subject but you're just making me think of this with the the restocking things is that we kind of need a NATO energy policy and there isn't mm. really one. You know, we 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 lean on everybody about what share of their GDP they're spending on defense, but you know there's a lot of natural gas in Western Europe, there's a lot of natural gas in Eastern Europe and in the British Isles. And uh, if everyone turned on the switches, um you could make Putin's energy um, <coughs> footprint irrelevant in 18 months.
0: Yeah, well, let's, um let's go a little bit more inward looking for a minute. And we were asked, as we reflect on this year, what do we like about working at the dispatch? And I'll just go ahead and put price under this on, on the spotlight <laughs> right now. Yes. as a as a new younger member of the dispatch team,
1: why do you like it so much price? Well, that's a great question, david. Um, <laughs> i'd I'd say a few things uh, again, sort of I've been working here for six months, so sort of lower low rung on the totem pole. Um, the fact that you know, I get to read and write and ask people questions for a living. um, and to me personally, that's that's pretty fun to do. um and while, you know, hopefully over the months and years to come, I can develop some more specific beats or subject matter expertise, I've gotten the chance to cover a wide range of topics and learn things that I wouldn't have learned if I wasn't working in journalism. Um, and then more broadly beyond that, I, I'm sure our subscribers are aware. Um, we've got great people working here and I I like and enjoy, you know, being in an office with and respect the people that I work with and for. Um, and that makes a makes a big difference. So it's a great, great job straight out of college for me to have.
0: Well, it strikes me that this is the wrong audience to have this conversation with, um, because they're all already subscribers. Yes. We don't <laughs> so this is them. like reaffirming. This is why you made the right decision, but here, so here's they can the, evangelize. Here, yeah, here's the, here's the twist on it, Kevin. How would you tell, how, how would you evangelize in, in these members who've, who are, who are already all in on us, how how would you evangelize the
2: dispatch? You know, um, one of the problems that we have editorially at the dispatch is that there's um, so much stuff. You know, um, it's something kind of behind the scenes here that we, we've talked about some is that we are afraid of making it too much of a fire hose, that it's overwhelming for readers mm. uh, that we're putting out so much stuff. So if that's kind of your problem, that's um, that's a good problem to have. And that shows that you're, you're sort of doing the right things. I, um, when I was in the, in the newspaper business, I, uh, you know, several times a year, I would get someone who wanted to cancel their subscription because of a column I'd written. And um, what I would do is I would go to their house on the last day of their subscription and bring them a cup of coffee. And uh, I give them my speech that uh, you know if you're canceling because we got something wrong or because it's boring because there's nothing interesting in the paper nothing useful to you fine cancel uh, but if you're canceling because it makes you mad uh, we're kind of doing what we're supposed to do mm-hmm. you know and um, and I'm not the only person who writes you know opinions you can certainly send a, you know a letter to the editor and whatnot and most of the times actually that that kind of worked. So I think that, you know, the best thing you can say about the dispatch is that it's 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 interesting to read every day. Um sure. there's a lot of stuff in there that's uh that is um perspectives and points of view and observations that you won't get everywhere else. Um one of the, the one of the great bans of American journalism is that um unlike British journalism, we at the big newspapers force people to write in a very boring way, uh, because mm-hmm. it's sort of a boring dry stylist prose is what is seen as serious in uh in, in New York and Washington. And the dispatch has really um done something fun by because you are building from scratch, we are building from scratch, that we don't have to bake those assumptions into the cake that the way to be interesting is to be boring, to be dry, to be um, you know, this ponderous voice of God Washington post way of writing about things, you know.
0: <laughs> right. Well, yeah, I think that that's, I mean, a, a great point about the dispatch is that we, it's, it, it's interesting and quite often fun to read. Yeah, Like there's just, there's a personality to it. And part of is the part of is the newsletter format, I think lends itself a bit more to the personality, uh, as that you feel like you're reading a person that you get to know a person, um, as you're reading their newsletter. I think that's a a kind of a and then the writers kind of form a bond with their readers in that newsletter um, process it's just a different way of doing things and the other thing i think i'm I'm writing a, a promo for uh, new subscriptions for tomorrow uh, to send out to all of our valued free listers whom we really wish would become paid members and that is there's something important about institution building it, mm-hmm. you know it's very easy to say man, I really don't like right-wing media. And it's a lot different to say, and so therefore we're gonna build an institution that does it right. And I think it's an important part of culture making to invest in good institutions and to build good institutions. And I think that that's what we're doing. So um, yeah, that was a great question. All right, moving on. Uh, Oh, here's a question from Aaron. If I threaten to cancel, will Kevin
2: come to my house? <laughs> Do you really want that? <laughs> um, maybe.
0: <laughs> All right. Let's go with some predictions for next year. Um, Bryce, let me let me ask you for some political predictions. At this point, next year, December twentieth, twenty twenty three. Yep. Is Donald Trump still running for the GOP nomination?
1: Ooh. Uh, If you're making me give a yes, no prediction, I'm going to say yes. But I would throw the question back at you, which would be by December 20th, 2023, is Trump going to have been indicted?
0: For a long time, I would have said no. And then Mar-a-Lago and the documents happened. And now I'm thinking... Probably, yes. And if one indictment comes, I think more than one will come. Um, if if he's indicted over Mar-a-Lago, I think he'll be indicted in Georgia. Uh, again, that's not certain. Um, it's crazy to even talk like this, a former president of the United States being indicted for actions while in office uh, and immediately afterwards. But this is what we're looking at. And let me put it this way the only thing that is keeping him from already being indicted is that he's the former president of the united states
1: mm-hmm.
0: that is it that is it there is no other reason um and so we're about to we're about to cross the rubicon here and by the way this will be the only this will be the last the last line of government that has not faced the teeth of law enforcement Um, Governors have, Supreme Court justices have experienced the bite of law enforcement, vice presidents. Um, But in this circumstance, this might be the last high office in the land that has not experienced the, the, the full weight of American law enforcement. And I think it'll be a good thing if we demonstrate that nobody's above the law here um what do you what do you think kevin 2023 this point at this point next year is donald trump still running for the gop nomination
2: oh yeah i think um well maybe not the gop nomination he's definitely running for president (sighs) okay and if he thinks that the gop nomination is the way to do that then then he'll certainly be doing that because the best way for him to keep out of jail and to keep out of bankruptcy court is to keep running for president right (laughs) um you know, it's a it's a great grift running for president. You can sell imaginary digital trading cards to people at 100. What do you make? Uh, how much money off of that? It was um, four and a half million. The four and a half million, uh, mm-hmm. just you know, in a pop, that's I um, mean, you know, that, that's 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 real money. I can. Um,
0: use it. <laughs> I
2: was surprised. You know, we have four crimes. Donald Trump, the guy, commits four crimes before breakfast most days. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> you know, he's a he's kind of a habitual criminal. Um, not typically not chargeable or indictable crimes, I would think for the most part, but um i think that um there's just no upside to quitting right at at least for a while because the problems aren't going to go away uh if he doesn't decide to run again and uh, and it shouldn't go the way if they decide to run again there's this kind of thing we do with politicians sometimes where it's they've done something awful and obviously illegal and they say well he's not running for re-election he's resigned his office that's punishment enough no, it's not. Uh, you know, uh, when you break the law, you you face the the, the process that you have to face for um, for people who break the law. And uh, I certainly hope that's the case with Trump. I mean, in all seriousness, if he's done something that's illegal and provably illegal and that he's convicted on those charges, and that's that's what should happen, because, as you say, no one should be above the law. Um, I don't want to see him um, tried in some sort of ham-fisted, half-assed way. Um as an obviously vindictive political right. matter, uh, mm-hmm. because I do believe in the rule of law more than I want to see uh, Donald Trump suffer as much as I like the prospect. and um, so yeah, I think that he's probably under indictment in a year and definitely still running for for president one one way or another
0: all right let's let's switch it up a little bit. um I have two two prediction questions, and they might take us through the rest of the time, but um, Here's next prediction question. Price, in December 20th, 2023, is Ron DeSantis still the prime alternative to Donald
1: Trump? Oof. Uh again, I'm gonna stick with yes, because sort of recency bias or inertia. Um, I have not yet seen someone who I, I think would emerge as the non-Trump alternative. Um, but there are, there are still definitely pitfalls that it could change. I, I would encourage, uh, they probably have since there are subscribers, but I would encourage people to read Andrew's, uh, piece this morning about DeSantis and the, the sort of COVID vaccine conspiracy stuff, um, that could end up playing poorly with, uh, you know, some suburban voters who (laughs) got vaccinated and sort of want things to be normal, um, yeah it it, there are ways in which that could play poorly politically for him i'm not saying that it will um or for all i know there's some other thing that emerges but if you're making me say right now and in a year is is desantis still the main
2: non-trump guy in the party i would say yes Kevin. yeah i think desantis is the only guy who um could be understood as a plausible and defensible candidate by what we used to call mainstream Republicans. I'm not sure if there's such things still exist, but who can also pick up the Trump element because of mm-hmm. his emergence as a culture war figure, particularly around COVID, which I think is going to continue to be a, uh, a very lively issue for, for those people. It's something they really, really are emotionally invested in. Desantis's problem is that he seems ready to lean too heavily into that when he doesn't need to. He's already a culture war lightning rod. He doesn't have to do anything to make that worse or more intense it's not going to go away he can just go ahead and keep being himself and he probably would be better off making a demonstration a continued demonstration of his ability to be a good governor um in addition to being a cultural lightning rod and um because that's the thing he's really going to have to prove i mean i think he's been a pretty good governor of florida in lots of ways but that's a um that's a hard case sometimes to make to people like rick perry was a very good governor of texas Mm -hmm but he had a hard time explaining that on a campaign trail. Jeb Bush was a very good governor of Florida. Uh, He had a hard time using that to his advantage when he was running for president, partly because it was furious in the past for him at that point. So DeSantis, if he is going to be that guy, probably should think about stepping away from the culture war stuff a little bit and stepping up his, Hey, I can do this job stuff in a way that people outside of Florida can understand.
0: Interesting. uh Um, One thing that has been interesting to me about Florida politics is the extent to which governors after Jeb Bush have kind of coasted on some of Jeb Bush's, (laughs) benefited a great deal from a lot of Jeb Bush's work.
2: Right. Yeah. Even as they kind of hold him in contempt. Um, You know, Rick Scott's a good example of this. He was a very good governor of Florida. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but his performance there was not something that really translated into. Um, something that was going to make him more of a national figure. And now what people know him for is um, kind of, you know, the stuff that he's done since then, and which hasn't been all that great or impressive.
0: All right. So here's the next question. And
2: let's, we started with Alito and let's end
0: with Alito, Dobbs and abortion. Hmm. Will history mark the Dobbs decision as the beginning of the end of legal abortion in the United States, or is the time when abortion became permanently legal through the democratic process or some mix thereof
1: uh price start with you some mix thereof i i think the the, I, the based off my reading of of the midterms in the last year as someone who does not think about this in the legal depth that you do david um it's just sort of changed the 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 landscape of how the policy fight is going to continue to happen but it'll be a fight for a long time with abortion pills and all sorts of other things.
2: Kevin, your thoughts. Yeah, I think that um, it remains to be determined. So all Dobbs did was give us a chance to have the fight that we're going to have. And what people on the pro-life side now have to do is engage in persuasion. Um, You know, winning, winning, elections is not going to be enough to get it done if you don't actually change people's minds Mm -hmm. because without a really broad and deep democratic consensus on this issue you're never going to have a stable policy environment you'll have short-term wins short-term losses um you know americans are very um convulsive when it comes to our electoral behavior you know you go from uh george w bush to barack obama to uh donald trump that's not that's not linear to say the least. That's not people operating on a straight line. So um, if you want to win the abortion issue, um, Dobbs isn't enough, winning in state legislatures isn't enough, these things are necessary, um, but you really do have to um, achieve some kind of consensus. I suspect that for 20 years, we essentially have France, um, you know, where you've got very liberal regime early in the pregnancy and much more restrictive rules later. And the pro-lifers job during that period of time is going to be moving the me- needle down from X number of weeks to X minus, you know, one week at a time, probably. Yeah,
0: I'm very interested in what happens in the cultural arena, um, in addition to the political. I think uh, the last the, the last election cycle was sobering from the pro-life perspective when when pro, when life issues were straight on the ballot. Uh, In other words, there was you weren't voting for a candidate. You were voting for a ballot measure. The pro-choice position won 100 percent of the time, including in a place like Kansas earlier before November in Kentucky, um, which is really sobering. However, pro-life politicians who had signed, for example, heartbeat bills, DeWine in Ohio, Kemp in Georgia, did really well. But it was not. There's no real indication it was because they signed the heartbeat bill. It was just that the heartbeat bill didn't undermine their support enough to make a difference given other virtues. So I think that's kind of the challenge for the pro-life movement right now. And then the other big challenge is the abortion rate in the U.S. went up during the Trump years for the first time since the Carter years. Our abortion rate went up during a presidency. And that's very sobering. Um. And when you look at abortion rates worldwide, you'll see often that, there, that the abortion rate and the abortion law don't necessarily go hand in hand. Germany and France, for example, have very similar abortion laws, but Germany has an abortion rate that's a fraction of America's of France's. And I think the pro life movement's going to really have to think hard not just about persuading people politically but culturally as well and that's um for for a long time i think we took for granted that the cultural momentum was on the pro life side uh and i'm i'm nervous about that now after the last 4 years or now i i i don't think we have any data from the the early part of the biden term yet but that's that's my big
2: concern is what's happening in the cultural arena I always get a little nervous when we say, how can we be more German? (laughs) But um, maybe how can we be more Swiss? I could live with, but uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, um, well, let's end on a lighter note. The question before we began was how long before one of the dispatch members was going to notice that it's hard for me to see, is that part of a bandolier behind you or.
2: Oh, it's a cuff or a, for a, a, a rifle stock. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. So I was cleaning some guns today and had to take it off. But, uh.
0: So our thought was it was going to take five minutes for a dispatch member to notice that. It was 23 minutes, okay, according we'll to see. Ryan. 23 minutes. So come on. Come on, guys. You got to pay attention to be a little bit more uh, on those backgrounds because we, we thought five minutes. Uh, Well, you know, I
2: to leave a little little Easter egg out there. (laughs)
0: All right. Well, that is it for this dispatch live, uh, Kevin Price. Thanks so much. Um, dispatch members, Merry Christmas. Uh, thank you so much for joining for subscribing. We couldn't do any of this without you and you are our chief evangelists. So please, um, Please uh, take the message of the dispatch to uh, friends and family uh, this holiday season. Oh, and Ryan wants me to mention that next week is a week off for Dispatch Live, Uh, that the week between Christmas and New Year's is, for most of us, one of the calmest weeks of the year. For some of us who are lawyers, it is the week when we get all of our continuing legal education done. So, I will, we will not be doing dispatch live next week, but thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in all year. Um, Merry Christmas, and we'll see you in 2023.